crack that coconut. Who wants to open up? Hello and welcome to the Crack That Coconut podcast that is cracking open the stigma around mental health. I'm your host, Juliette Kirby, and over this series, I'll be joined by guests who open up about their own mental health experiences and how they have supported people in need. By sharing our stories, we hope to crack open more conversations about mental health. While opening up and sharing our own experiences is a great step in the right direction for looking after our mental health, the advice given on this podcast does not substitute for medical advice or treatment for a medical condition. Do you sometimes wish for an icebreaker when conversations run dry? Do you feel like you're always talking about the same things with your friends and family? Well, we've got the perfect game for you. The Crack That Coconut card game is the perfect conversation starter. Our questions are simple. For example, would you rather speak every language or talk to animals? They open up new topics and conversations that you usually wouldn't think to initiate with your friends, families, or even colleagues. For only $25, the game can be all yours. To purchase it, check out the show notes or go to crackthatcoconut.com. Get ready to crack that coconut and open up. Today I'll be talking to a good friend and old colleague of mine, Georgina Ringler. Georgie joins me to dive deeper into the intersection of mental health and work and how the future of work is changing as the dynamic between companies and their employees continues to evolve. Georgie and I worked together in management consulting for a couple of years and at the beginning of this year, Georgie decided to take a break from consulting to do a Masters of Public Health. To kick off, I asked Georgie how she thinks the conversation around mental health is changing in the workplace, particularly in light of COVID and the lockdowns we've been having over the last year and a half. I think it was changing already, but I think that COVID has really accelerated the conversation and where it's going and what type of conversations people are having. When I first started working back in 2018, I was working in a bank before we worked together in management consulting. And I feel like back then you had your personal life and you had your work life and you didn't really talk about each other. And I, th- I remember thinking you wouldn't dream back then of, bringing up something as personal as your mental health at work. You just, you wouldn't even cross your mind to think that was an option. And I do think that even from the few years that we've been in the workforce, the conversation has been really changing. You know, we've had Are You Okay Day, which has been really good. Brene Brown's brought up how good it is to talk about vulnerability. I think that's shifting the conversation in a really good way um, towards really recognising that mental health and the conversation around mental health in the workplace, it's moving from being a nice to have for companies to being a necessity to really ensure that not only are workers happy and productive, but also that you're attracting, retaining and building the best people to work for you. So I think that while it's been quite slow to realise, it's definitely getting there, although quite slowly, but it's just people now realising that it's inherently not only inherently good to care about other people who you work with and work for, but it's also really good for business. I mean, if people feel safe at work, they do better work, they're more motivated, you don't spend as much time and money on recruiting and retention. It almost seems like a no-brainer. I think that's it's slowly starting to get there. 
Yeah, that's that's so true. And I think there was an article I was reading just in preparation for this. Mental health costs the global economy, or it's going to cost $16 trillion by 2030. And there is so many incentives to for workplaces to uh, yeah, better look after um, their employees' mental health. And but I think there is still some, as you said, this is still so early and it it is being accelerated by COVID, but there is still some resistance and I think a little bit of uh, a checkbox exercise that can be done by workplaces to tick the box that they're, they're doing something in the mental health space. But I've found or what I've observed is that unless you have buy-in from, from leadership or management, it's really difficult to change that culture from, from a workplace where you know, you've got these generations who've just mm-hmm. never opened up the conversation about mental health before, let alone in the workplace, uh, who, yeah, kind of, I think, have a bit of a resistance to it. And, yeah, I think, what do you see? Because I know we obviously both tried to do a bit of bottom-up cultural change, but how do you think workplaces can better support the bottom-up movement or the wellness mental health movement that's coming for their employees? I think you raise a perfect point around there has to be leadership buy-in for there to be change. And exactly those generations, they're still trying to marry that generation gap where you do have older generations who are still just, it's all new to them, it's all brand new. And especially if young people come into the workforce, we've got such a big expectation of how quickly change happens. We think, you know, it's just a drop of a hat and things change. And the reality is that education is a huge piece. People still don't really understand it. They've got their inherent values that that's just because of how they've grown up. And so getting them to just at least understand a bit more or to just to think in a different way, it is a challenge. But I think that around the bottom-up initiatives, it's really important for there to be that leadership buy-in from all levels. I mean, just because I, it's tricky because I think at one hand you've got people who are in really top management positions who you almost expect to be leaders, even though they're not necessarily leaders. They just have authority and they're really good managers and they're great at their jobs, but they don't necessarily like other leaders that you want to go to and ask for questions or go to and ask for guidance. And then you've got people at the almost the bottom end in quotation marks who are leading those bottom-up initiatives because they see a change, they see a need for there to be cultural change, especially in big organisations, and they're willing to put in that effort and be leaders and grow that up, build that up and bring everyone up. But if you don't have that meeting in the middle of people at both ends, it's going to be very tricky. There's going to be a lot of friction. So I think it's challenging for the bottom-up initiatives to gain traction unless there is a lot of support and people are buying in and understanding that it is really important and what they're saying does resonate often throughout the rest of the organisation if they're seeing that need for it already. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, increasingly employees are going to become more demanding of their workplaces and and when there isn't that buy-in or meeting in the middle, I think people have a bit more power or feel empowered to to go to different employees and to seek out different Mm. career options or paths that do allow for that. And you're just seeing yeah. it with all these, you know, tech startups that are really opening up, you know, unlimited leave, like mental health days, work from home, kind of total flexibility. And it's just the more companies that uh, 
that do that, I think the more it's going to drive the change, which which is exciting because I know also we, we've spoken a bit about how we've done some bottom-up work uh, for our workplaces, but, you know, that, that was challenging. And when there is a, a meeting in the middle, it can be a lot of extra time and energy that's spent on, on trying to get something pretty simple over the line. It was interesting uh, in that article that I was reading in preparation for this, it was saying that around 80% of people feel like the pandemic has affected their mental health in relation to work. How do you think you observed that during, during our time in management consulting, just the conversation shift or the, um, the reality shift that took place? And how do you think, what were some of the best things that, that our company did to, to manage that? I think, just as you said, with the flexibility for workplaces, you can have all the flexibility in the world, but if you not have, don't have a culture that supports people to feel empowered to take it, then it doesn't really work. You've got to have that conversation and that safe space where people feel empowered to, first of all, take advantage of those great initiatives, but also to ask for what they want and what they need when they do need it. I think it's... One of the best things I've heard from one of my friends who's also working in mentoring consulting was that instead of having constant Zooms and like Zoom meetings and Zoom drinks, every Friday they've just asked everyone to clock off at 3pm throughout the pandemic. And she was saying that that's been the best thing ever because suddenly she can go to the beach on a Friday afternoon or go for a walk and that's been way better than sitting on another Zoom drinks with more people and that's been super interesting. And I think another really interesting one was about how people almost feel like they want more support from technology rather than from other people. And so using really innovative initiatives to get people to think about what they need and what, what's, what's working for them and what's not through technology has been a really interesting shift because I think most people have almost been like, let's stop getting off technology, get, get off technology, let's have Zoom, like more connection. I think that there's a really nice middle space where you can use technology to your advantage to bring people closer together. And that's been really fun as well. So... Yeah, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. I think throughout the pandemic last year, when we were still working together, having those really real honest conversations and check-ins was really important. I also think just having check-ins that actually aren't about work at work. Almost when you're online, if someone sends you a message because you're working from home, you just because they need something. While in the office, you'd have a quick conversation on the side being like, how's your day? Like, what's going on? And you don't really get that. And so when you see a Slack message come up or a Skype message, you think, oh, my God, someone needs something. And so trying to just rewire that to be about connection, to just try to build that on a way that isn't just all about work when you're online is also really important and really nice just having those real conversations that you would have in the office. Yeah, that's so true. And I really want to uh, dive into a point there. You were talking about how people are turning to technology to look after or to better support their mental health. And I think this is a really interesting one that I'm still not, I'm not sold on technology as, as the solution for, uh, for looking after mental health, because I see this as it's still very much like a people problem. And I think more conversations mm-hmm. need to happen. The stigma needs to, um, we need to sort of break the stigma and, you know, we just need to be able to connect and, and get the support we need when we do. But I do see technology as a great enabler for for that. And it's interesting because there's a lot of tech startups uh, 
going into the mental health space that are all promising sort of yeah technology solutions for mental health whether it's ai robots to to have a chat to like like a therapist or or um or a counsellor or whether it's uh, these sort of mood checkers that can report back sort of your average moods and then keep track of how how you're feeling but I find when I think about it, and I've trialed all these different apps <laughs> is that the drop like I just give up after a couple of days you know and um, yeah I'd love to get your thoughts on sort of how you see technology as um, yeah as, as supporting mental health rather than um, replacing a, a people connection which is sometimes what we need I think you've hit it back on the head in terms of it's there to support it it's not there to re- replace that human interaction and people need to feel safe enough to talk about and open up and understand what good mental health means for them and what they need when they aren't feeling like themselves and do feel like they need a bit more support and I think that's where being in touch with yourself with other people is so important and having that connection I think technology is there to support and make those connections when you do need it, but I don't think it's there to replace understanding yourself, understanding other people, connecting with friends and family, checking in. And I think sometimes it can be a bit more anxiety-inducing to log into an app to get mental health help as opposed to talking to a friend. But it almost can be that first step at least towards understanding what, what could work, what might not work for some individual people who maybe do or especially do really feel that stigma of I can't talk to my family about this or I can't talk to my friends about that because they might think x y and z and having that sometimes I guess it is anonymized on an app connection can be a really good gateway but I completely agree it can't replace it and I think that just even for general well-being and happiness connecting with other people is so important and it it's what makes us human you know like we kind of do need to be able to connect with each other talk have really meaningful discussions and that's at the end of the day what will really help make us feel better but yeah so I think I see technology as more of a it bridges that first gap and can support and complement it but it can't replace it no Mm. yeah yeah so true and I think it it also helps accelerate it right by Mm. opening up those conversations or getting that support to people who don't have people within their support network then they can open up to because it takes a long time to, uh, to create social change and yeah. um, and I think that's what is happening with the mental health movement like it's not going to be solved overnight like people aren't just gonna you know start talking about all their <laughs> the problems and um, feelings and emotions with the click of a switch but no I think that's um you've raised some really good points there so just, yeah, changing tact a bit. Maybe we can talk a little bit about your own mental health journey and what's kind of opened up this self-awareness and, and understanding of, um, of the importance of looking after your mental health. It definitely has been a journey. Um, I think for me, my mental health journey really started in the end of high school, year 11 and 12, I guess, really a few things came up that, probably hadn't dealt with earlier in high school. There's such pivotal, transformative times of your life that you do need a lot of support. And if you don't feel supported, you know, you can feel really isolated and down. And back then, I think we also didn't really know what it meant. There was so much stigma, like no one really spoke about it. It was really hard to talk to family and friends about 
needing help. I didn't know what help I needed and what I wanted. And you kind of do need to, I guess, like go on that journey to, to know what it, it's like. And I think from then at uni, I don't know if it's a version of the college I went to down in Canberra, but university students have the highest rate of mental health issues. And it's so sad because it's such a beautiful time of your life. It's so exciting. It's so transformative, but it's almost glorified being not well. And I think the biggest thing I learned throughout university was how good it is to feel good. And all the time and money I've invested in my mental health throughout those years, I think has really stood me in good stead for post-university life, working full time, that kind of thing. But I think the biggest thing I've realised, and I think you were definitely there for me when this happened at work, was there are little moments that are really pivotal in terms of helping you to understand or being a key realisation moment of when things are really important and when you do realise big things. And there was a situation at work, it must have been the year before last, so back in 2019, and it wasn't even technically, you know, on paper a big deal, but something happened with a friend and I was so worried about them and I was really stressed at work. I was tired. It was a big project. It was with a global client, so we were burning the candle from both ends. And because I was so stressed and worried about my friend, I was just not doing the best work I could, you know? Like it, it was subpar and I knew that and my manager knew that and my manager, I think, was upset that, you know, I wasn't doing as good a work as I usually did and that kind of thing. And we went for a walk, Juliet, you and I, and you were kind of like, you need to talk to them. You need to talk to your manager because, you know, you're feeling really sensitive. They're not being that sensitive because they don't know what's going on and you need to ch- chat about and bridge that gap. And it was so scary to talk to my manager about it. You know, I, I kind of felt like this isn't a big deal. Why am I upset about it? You know, like I should be able to handle this and that kind of thing. And literally it's not that I expected them to react badly, but, you know, I, I don't know what I expected. I was just scared. And when I finally had that conversation with my manager, it was like the biggest weight of my shoulders. And we made a plan. We figured out what I could do doing differently, what I could do to take some time off to support my friend and that kind of thing. And it's almost just creating that safe space and being able to have that conversation was the biggest realisation that if it took me that much to get to have that conversation, it must be so hard for other people to have that conversation even in the first place. And so I think that was the biggest key learning moment for me was that helping to create that safe space where people can feel like they can have those conversations is just so important. And it's a whole company thing. It's a whole company culture thing to be able to talk to colleagues about mental health, about what support you need, what's going on. So it might need to be an everyday thing, but when it does really need attention to feel like you can have those conversations is just it's just so important yeah yeah gosh that's so true and yeah I do remember that that instance and (laughs) it just it does remind you that like the end of the day we're all just you know human beings and we're you know empathetic and understanding Mm -hmm. of each other's like situations well most people are and it there's something that and I think this does come down to a cult a company culture thing that that can happen that you just think that people won't understand and that you, you know, you can see stress or emotions as a sign of weakness. And I think when that happens, that's when you start to, you try to hide it and and just feel like I, you know, this shouldn't be affecting me that much, but the more experiences you have like that and the more you uh, 
gain an appreciation for looking after your your emotions and your well-being you start to see how warped that is that like you would just put work over like allowing yourself to grieve or, or feel or <laughs> do what you need to do to support a family member or a close mm. friend and I remember when I was doing an internship at another management consulting firm I got some really bad news during the day that my dog was pretty much like on his deathbed and and I just sort of was like well I have to finish the day because I was stressed about not getting a job offer or you know not seeming like I was committed enough and I was just an intern just just crazy and yeah I think now if, if I got some news like that like my reaction would just be so different and and yeah I think it comes from also when you've gone through that a few times knowing that the reaction is positive it gives you more confidence or to feel more comfortable to do it again to to uh, yeah to go and and uh, be vulnerable again and you mentioned Brene Brown earlier and I loved that book and I think I've watched her Netflix <laughs> doco <laughs> yeah which is it's so true it's just like vulnerability is really really hard but like really powerful when you do employ it mm. and especially when you see people in you know higher ranking positions be vulnerable it, it opens up so many doors for you to feel comfortable to do the same thing it yeah it's so important I think going through those experiences and then being able to be on the other side of it and creating that space for someone else to open up mm. powerful and it's pretty I don't know it brings back down to earth I guess a little bit yeah and it's going to be so interesting sort of as like the younger generations move through uh, the workforce and who come in with this sort of mindset and expectation of how how work what what the interplay of of health and work is mm. I think there's going to be some some big changes in what the future of work looks like and I'm interested to get your yeah your perspective on this and how you think you know people who are just graduating now from uni may be thinking about work and and how they're making how mental health or just health in general is influencing their decisions on on where they go in the in their career yeah I hope it's changing. I, I really do hope. I think it's going in the right direction. I think I actually was having a conversation with someone from she was a university student earlier on this week and she was just kind of saying, you know, as soon as I finish uni, I want to get a job. And there's such a rush to get a job straight out of uni. And for people who are first entering the workforce that they don't, they just want a job. They don't kind of think about what the company is, what they're doing. You know, it's such a, they think it's such a competitive environment that, they have to really, you know, give up a part of themselves to do a job and do it well and enter the industry and get a foot in the door and, you know, start to accelerate their career and everything. And I think that, well, I hope what's happening is that people are starting to realise that it's as much of how the company suits you as it is about how you suit them. And companies that take good care of, their employees, their mental health, their physical health, their capacity to do work, they feel well, really well valued and understood at work and they can bring their whole self to work. I hope that people are starting to realise that that is so important in terms of your career, being able to do the best job that you can and having a sustainable career. I mean, burnout is such a big thing, especially in entrepreneurs and people who are starting companies that it's, a, it's a, such a shame when 
things don't go out go as planned because it's just been a constant hustle and that hustle's been glorified for so long. And so I hope what's happening is that people are starting to realise that it's a balancing act and that to have a sustainable career that is continually going up, there has to be a two-way street where there's communication between the employees and the employer about mental health, physical health. I mean, they're so interrelated. And also about how they can both support each other because it's, it's not just you do your job now and you go home and that's it. You're doing shift work. It's, it's part of your life. You spend so much time at work. It's so important that you're happy at work. I mean, obviously everyone has up and down days at work. <laughs> Nothing's ever perfect. Even at the hospital at the moment, I had a really bad day the other day and I got home and I was like, wow, I haven't had one of those really bad days in a while. But then other days, so, it's so great and so easy. And so it's kind of the idea is to have like a general good balance and that it generally feels up and good, but that you are you do find purpose in your work and it you do feel supported and valued. And I hope that young people as they're entering the workforce are realizing that that's so important, including in their first job. It's not just a first job, it's the first step in your career. And it's it's almost like sets the foundation and the tone for the rest of your life as well. So I hope that's how it's changing. We'll see. Um, it's getting there. It's going the right direction. <laughs> yeah no that is so true uh you know when you you sort of take that first job yeah thinking that you don't have much um choice right or you don't feel very empowered to be selective because someone's sort of taken taken you on to train you up and I think yeah. once you get that training that um yeah then you realize maybe you you're more <laughs> employable than than you thought but I think that's it's interesting and I wanted to talk about this, but when we were in management consulting, there was a lot of conversation or, yeah, sort of a lot of cultural discussions around work-life balance. And the other concept is work-life integration. And I remember really fighting for work-life balance in my consulting work. But now that I'm sort of out of it, I realise that, like, the power comes, I think, from work-life integration in that you have it's sort of, yeah, generally everything kind of works. There's a bit of flow. Some days you're, you know, answering a call, um, you know, staying a bit later or working a bit later, but other days you're for going for a run at, you know, in the middle of the day or, <laughs> you know, going to grab a coffee um, with a colleague and just having a really big chat. And it's like, yeah, it, it doesn't have to be so separated. And I think when I was doing consulting I needed it to be separated for me to to cope with it but now having a job that's less demanding of my of my time and 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 health I've realized that work-life integration can exist and can be quite empowering but what do you think about the the concepts and which do you subscribe to (laughs) I love talking about work-life balance and I think we've had so many conversations about it over the last few years working together absolutely I mean I'm not sure if you ever heard anyone say this at work, but um, there used to be the saying that either you worked for your weekend or you made your weekend work for you. And basically what that meant was that if you were either constantly tired at work during the week because you were enjoying your weekends or you would crash and sleep all weekend so that you could be fresh and energised at work. And I hated this idea. I thought it was just the worst idea ever. I never heard that, but that's terrible. <laughs> give up one side of your life to suit the other I just it was the worst thing and I mean I found it's 
it is so topical and so many people have an interesting perspective on it. But, uh, I mean, for me, a couple of years ago, the biggest pivotal moment for me was that I had to, I couldn't go to a friend's birthday dinner because I had to work. And I doubt she remembers this at all, but I do. And it was years ago and I still feel bad about it. I never wanted it to happen again. And I don't think it's fair for, you know, in most jobs, things aren't that urgent that you have to stay back that late to get something done. And especially as I'm studying public health now and working at the hospital, sometimes in the emergency department, working there and things actually are urgent. I can't give a lot of perspective in terms of, that. you know, it, it can wait. Like it's, no one's going to really, you know, nothing's really bad is going to happen if the slide deck gets done the next day or you publish it. I don't know, you don't publish an Excel spreadsheet, but <laughs> it gets done the next day or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think exactly with the integration side of thing, side of things, there is that idea of tilting where some days you are doing more work because something needs to be done and you want to get done. You're in a flow and you're focusing on that. And then other days you are taking a bit more time to yourself and overall it evens out. But I think the biggest thing for me that is that work-life balance isn't a tick box exercise. You know, like it's not something that just because you make it to something that you wanted to make it to doesn't mean you have a good work-life balance, you know. You might have to go back and work after that or something like that. So I think it's both work-life balance and it's about like also feeling empowered and feeling like you have that that balance and you do have the room and flexibility to do it, how to suit you. Yeah, so I think it's, yeah, about sustainability and not having to give up one part of your life, whether it be for work or be in your personal life for the other part. Yeah, no, that's that's a really good point. And I second that. There's just those, there's a couple of things you said. Uh, and one of the problems I had is that I didn't, I never rested on the weekends to, to give myself the energy for the week because I was so like sort of fighting against the fact that work was taking so much of my social life out of me during the week that I wouldn't let it do it on the, on the weekends. And yeah, I think it's about in feeling empowered to have that choice, right? Of Yeah, I won't do this now, but I'll do it later. And I remember there was times we were saying about, you know, working in the emergency room and, and understanding what urgency really is and, and what sort of warrants <laughs> stress. And I remember there was yeah. some times where I was just so stressed and trying to I think complain or you know get help from my mum and she was like you know what you you're not a doctor think about how urgent (laughs) uh, and the kind of stress it like it's life or death decisions that you're making and I was really you know stressed over some I can't remember what it was you know obviously it was so insignificant but obviously a deadline and and feeling like I had to compromise on something and it did just give me that perspective of like sometimes it can feel like this is so urgent and pressing and you know it's got to be done and to be able to step away and think uh this isn't a life or death matter and have that kind of perspective but it's really hard to when that's kind of the the company culture and the expectations to change that and I remember when we started there was this um saying and it continued on from (laughs) for the whole time we were there about managing expectations and and I just think I remember when I heard it, I just thought I just could never really subscribe to it because you could try I feel like you can try to manage expectations and, and for people listening it's about if someone asks you to do a piece of work sort of repeating that back to them in the way that you've interpreted mm-hmm. to give them an understanding of 
how long do you think it's going to take you, what you think you're going to do so that you're both on the same page of what the output of the work that, that is expected. But I found that sort of like <clears throat> you could do it, but you were always in a less empowered state than, than maybe you realised to be able to say, well, actually I have dinner plans, a friend's birthday dinner at 6pm. And so, you know, this is, I only have two hours to work on this and it's probably, um, yeah, that's all I can do because I don't think that kind of response would have been accepted. Yeah. Yeah, it was tricky. And it's, we had so many conversations like that about work-life balance where it was almost like you had to pick and choose what was important to you and what things you really wanted to go to and had to give up something else to make sure it worked for the project or, I don't know, the, whatever you're working on. I don't really think it's very fair. <laughs> like, I know. Like, we can think about so much of our lives for work and to be able to take at least a little bit of that back, really important. Yeah. 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 Vanessa, what was your, I mean, I know you always were interested in, in health and it was sort of your plan to, to, go, to go back and study at some stage. Was that something that you kind of realised earlier on that maybe made you look to your passions and where you sort of wanted to go a bit earlier than expected? I think so. I think the pandemic definitely accelerated as well. There was one night that I was still living at home when I was working in management consulting and we were on a project and we were just talking about urgency. Something had to be done that night. And I was up until 3 or 4 a.m. on my computer typing away, doing it as quickly as I could at the early hours in the morning. And my dad came into my room and at like 4 a.m. was like, can you stop typing? Like, I can't sleep. Like, it's so annoying. Like, go to bed. And I was like, annoying for you. I'm the one who's still up and working, you know? Like, give me a break. And I think that that was almost, I guess, the thing that kind of triggered me to start thinking a bit more broadly, to have that really big think about what I really wanted to do and what was next for me. And whether if I do go back into consulting, you know, what would I want it to look like for me? So I definitely think it was a big part of it. The other part was it was that I wasn't enjoying the work that I was doing. I wanted to be doing it work in the health space. That was really my bit more of my purpose, my passion. So doing some sort of move into that industry at some point was really important to me. But as well, I think ironically was that once I made that decision to go back and study and I knew that, you know, work and this sort of long hour project work there was a date that it was going to stop at some point made me better at my job because I didn't have that attachment to the outcome I wasn't worried about it being perfect I wasn't worried about it you know being the reason I get promoted or don't get promoted and all of that and I think that almost having that perspective was pretty amazing in terms of how it could be one of the consultants who are a few below us asked me one day like how do you have such a good work-life balance like you know it was a few months before I was um due to start my uni course and I was like mm, is it because I don't care as much you know it was kind of a bit awful but it was I was still doing like such better work then because I had that balance I had that perspective and I wasn't worried about it and I think that that was pretty key in terms of it can be sustainable if you can find that you know, right balance isn't the best word for it, but that perspective, I think. Mm, um, it's like that ability to dis disconnect a bit, like from, yeah. And not be everything and anything. Yeah, no, yeah. that's so true. I mean, I had a similar, similar experience and I think my 
aha moment came when in the middle of lockdown last year and I was on a due diligence working over like over the weekend till 2am every night like later wasn't sleeping getting up at seven to work again and then it was just like seeing my family sitting there and being like what is going on and sort of when you were in the work place you'd just be sitting in a room and around people who are also doing the same thing and I think that normalizes it a bit but when you sort of take that kind of work and put it into a you're just your family home where everyone's going to bed at like 9 p.m and you're going back for the second like second shift um it does really help you gain perspective and yeah anyway no I know you're only on a um a, a work break but I think it's um good and it's really good that these uh, firms offer you know a, a leave of absence to give you that opportunity to explore different vocations that you might want to get to in the future yeah I think as well with the work-life balancing and talking about physical health as well and how important that is to your mental health I mean last year I remember one day my phone recorded that I'd done nine steps <laughs> I hadn't left my room and stuff like that you know like it's the work's taking away the ability for you to go for a walk I mean something has to change yeah that is yeah. so true gosh and that was the thing like as well I noticed was I would because to to carve out the time to look after your physical health you just have to get up earlier yeah. and when you're working at sort of both ends you're sort of pushing it to the limit getting out to exercise at like 5am is just it's really tough and but it's the only time that you that you have to do it but some people like you know listen to some podcasts and they're just like it's really highly must be like so efficient or like really got a good routine down pat and they're able to do that but I also think it's about having recovery time and if you don't have that then you can't burn burn the candle at both ends right it's hard to get up at 5am and go for a run or go to the gym or something if you're also going to bed at 2am, you know, you kind of have to have that balance at either end of the day and it's, it's hard to get. I feel like, as you said, you know, when you, if you can detach from the work, it can be quite empowering to help you make those better decisions for yourself. And I think I, yeah, it's something that I, I struggle to talk to, you know, or advise some friends with who are still in that kind of state where, you can tell they're not happy, but like it just, I think it can sometimes feel like you don't have a choice, but I, I think someone said to me once, it's just like, you always have a choice, right? And do you still want this kind of <laughs> lifestyle? And that was when I yeah, started really thinking about like, what's important to me and, you know, I still want to be successful and, you know, have a great career, but at what cost? And just changed my perspective a bit on it I also think you know with us and a lot of people you're going to get there anyway I mean just by the virtue of personality you're going to be wanting to keep working and do better and keep pushing yourself and that it doesn't have it's it's not going to come any slower because you're or faster because you're pushing yourself to extreme limits and ends and sacrificing your mental health your physical health just to get a job done if anything, it's the opposite. So, yeah, perspective is pretty amazing to have at the other end. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's just coming back to what we're saying, though, about, you know, these uh, new generations coming through the workforce do have more of that perspective, whereas I think yeah. when I talk to, you know, um, sort of my dad's 
like my parents' generation, this was just never really thought, like it was never thought about. You just worked hard and then you brought your head up when you were like 30 or 40 or something and then started to have these like midlife crises, crises because I'd never thought about their personal life before yeah. uh, and how how important investing in that early on is. But anyway, I think we're a little bit uh, over time. And to conclude, I usually get a book recommendation from my guest. What am I reading at the moment? <laughs> <laughs> I'm reading at the moment. It's just a novel, All the Light We Cannot See. And my mum gave it to me because I think she'd read, read it and kind of thought, oh, Georgie will like it. And usually when my mum gets me a book, I kind of, you know, maybe open it up in a few years' time. But it's been the best book for not only a bit of perspective but also to read before bed and really wind down. It's so beautifully written. Yeah, I think that was, that's been the most surprising book that I've read recently that's been really lovely. So maybe that one. There's definitely not anything about mental health that's been a really nice one to, I guess, even enjoy something and relish in it and for that to be something really nice to do, yeah. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it's good when you find a little book like that. Do you sometimes wish for an icebreaker when conversations run dry? Do you feel like you're always talking about the same things with your friends and family? Well, we've got the perfect game for you. The Crack That Coconut card game is the perfect conversation starter. Our questions are simple. For example, would you rather speak every language or talk to animals? They open up new topics and conversations that you usually wouldn't think to initiate with your friends, families, or even colleagues. For only $25, the game can be all yours. To purchase it, check out the show notes or go to crackthatcoconut.com. Get ready to crack that coconut and open up!